telling where you'll end up. Can you make it through? To the night's end. friend. We got your message to meet at the front door. What is it? Have you found Malik's remains? Hello. Unfortunately not. Malik's diary said, at the east of all things. We assumed this was in the house. We've checked all throughout the eastern wing and haven't found anything. I I even checked the secret places I know of as well. Damn. Don't fret. We believe Malik may be referring to the East Gardens. We've called you here to assist with the search. Will you help us? Of course. You don't even need to ask. There's a buzz around the house with all the residents. Yes, spirits that have been dormant for decades have been waking up. Fantastic. Let's walk. They want to fight back as well. We are with you. My father has been trying to chase down my mother and get through to her. I feel for Alan, and of course you, Anna. To be apart from your mother for so long must be horrible. We'll get through to her. Thank you, Samuel. You've always been a friend to the family, and not just a valet. Of course, Anna. I really feel like we are close to the end here. There's a tension in the air. Like static. I must be prepared. Nothing. There has to be something here. What's that, friend? What compass? We found it in the West Gardens, in the seat that Anna was sitting on. He was always interested in what was in there. It's pointing east. Ooh, that's exciting. Maybe we should get the others, Anna. That's a good idea. This might be it. We should have as many people around as possible. What is this? Looks like a door in the tree. We should definitely get everyone else. You're right. We will wait here. Friend. What are you doing? Don't touch. The Door in the Woods. Written by M.A. Smith. Narrated by Georgia Cook. I want to tell you about something that happened a long time ago. 
I've never told anyone this before, and I'm scared. Not that you'll disbelieve me, but that you will. Because if what I'm about to tell you actually happened, and wasn't the set of hallucinatory events I've half convinced myself was the truth of the matter, and I don't know if I could keep my sanity in the face of it. But all stories, real or imagined, have to start somewhere. So I might as well start this one on the Sunday afternoon when I first began rooting around in those woods. Perhaps if the football game hadn't been cancelled, this whole thing wouldn't have gotten started. Perhaps if I'd been more committed to my distance learning course and had put my head down to study in the aftermath of said cancellation, I wouldn't be writing this at all. <laughs> Perhaps if Kaz hadn't broken up with me, I wouldn't have been spinning my wheels that day either, and neither a cancelled football match or a doorway into some unspeakable place would have had any bearing on my life's course. There it is. Such are the roads we tread. We cannot see the traps in the distance, and only become aware of them as we hear them snap shut around our ankles. I lived, then, on a small housing estate which had been so recently carved into the land that the rawness of the building was everywhere apparent. A row of houses, bricks as yet unweathered, ended abruptly, separating into a scrubby field where meadow grasses bobbed and weaved as if unaware of the partial amputation. Indigo dusks fell, if you looked from certain angles out of certain high windows, over distant hedgerows, but when you shifted your gaze a fraction, the orange blur of Sergium streetlight reflected off of rows of car windshields infiltrated your vision, so that you were never truly sure if you inhabited a dying countryside or a newly born suburban hybrid. And everywhere, building continued. A new library sprouted, a row of shops bloomed up and out of fallow concrete, a school mushroomed in stages from the soil. A village hall put out brick tendrils and grew upward, seeking the sky. I rented a top-floor flat in this newborn town, and things were good for me. I had an okay job. I was working on a qualification so that I could ditch it for a better one, and I even got together with Kaz, although it didn't last long. He used to come and stay at the flat on the weekends, and we would walk together in the afternoons, just around the estate, or to the pub at its periphery. Kaz didn't like the half-land around the town. He said it gave him the creeps, the way the brambles and scrub trees had so quickly reclaimed the skeins of wire and abandoned piles of breeze blocks that the builders had left behind on the field's edges, as if the land were angry at the incursion and merely waiting for its chance to reclaim its own. I used to laugh at him about it. I feel bad about that now. The Sunday I'm telling you about was in late October, as I recall. It was that time of the year when the air is smoky and sharp and the light is strange and fey, when dawns and dust extend outwards, so that there are times when the creeping greyness meets and entwines, and the only telling apart the hours of the day is by the rising fog of the morning or the lowering gloom of the late afternoon. This day was wild and damp and steely, the rain lashing hard and twisting the russety leaves from the trees in rough pulses. A few survivors were straggly things, finally dripping from the branches in forlorn little flurries after the storm blew through. It was obvious that the pitch was going to be too waterlogged to play, and I wasn't surprised when Lewis rang to say the match was to be postponed. I could have invited him over, I guess, but I wasn't in the mood for it. Kaz had broken up with me the week before, and I still only wanted to wallow in my own fetid company. 
Burrow, my dog. Understood. He started whining at the door the moment I got off the phone, and I agreed with him. The afternoon was for getting out into the now softening drizzle, forgetting about things for a while. I hadn't intended to go into the wood. It just happened. Much the same way that a person doesn't intend on catching a plane that's destined to crash, or on smoking the cigarette that'll be the one, the one in all those thousands that went before it, that will trigger the cancer. I just intended to get out of the flat for a bit with Toro, to take him for a run around the fields and fill my lungs with some of that autumn air that's so full of flavour it's as if you're eating it, rather than breathing it. Nothing more. Sure, I took a little flask of spirits with me, tucked it into my coat pocket. What of that? As I said, my boyfriend had just dumped me, and I was wallowing. Not terminally wallowing, you understand. Just readjusting. An early dusk was settling, soot-like, over the half-field as I crossed the town's vague border, stepping over a low wooden fence, which Toro scuttled happily beneath, coating his belly with red mud. Frail rain fell, drops thin and sporadic, as we ambled through the long grass, watching the lights come on in the houses that flanked us, people milling within, so lit, being framed. A blow for our entertainment as we continued to the meadow's far border, where scrubby trees, homes to nests of plastic bags and folds of ragged polythene, marked the edge of a small but dense woodland. Toro, smelling something tempting, bounded into the trees, and I, vaguely interested in this unexplored territory, followed. There was something off-kilter about those woods, and I sensed it straight away. I didn't mind it, though, thinking it was just to do with their proximity to the estate, that the oddness was simply due to the juxtaposition of the primal, untamed forest with the sharp-edged march of the houses so close to the border. There was a melancholy there, and that was fine with me. It suited my mood. I sat on a damp stump, watching the purple strands of sky visible through the branches overhead, and sipped down a not insignificant amount of whiskey while Toro ferreted round in the wet leaves. And then we went home. And that could have been it. But it wasn't. For over the following weeks, I found myself drawn back to that place again and again. I finished work each day and, driving home, found myself thinking about that peaceful, straggly despondency of those woods. How the base hum of traffic there was ever audible, but distant too, like a noise heard at the tail end of a dream. I liked finding a spot within the grey-green dim to sit and think. I liked the way the whiskey sludged up the edges of things, so that the ground, now boggy with rotten leaves, sometimes undulated beneath me and, on more than one occasion, I woke from a dizzy snore to feel Toro's damp fur pressed against my face and to find that full dark had crept in, unseen. As autumn withered away, revealing the stark bones of winter beneath, I began trying to resist the daily urge to head to the woods. A bottle the flask long discarded as being too feeble in its capacity, was something soothing tucked tight beneath the layers of my clothing. To reapply myself to my, largely forgotten, coursework. To abstain from the luring pull of those slow and bleak thoughts that, when sat tight in the half-light of the trees, were as comforting as a heavy blanket, weighted with snow. I allowed myself one last foray into the woods. Well, that's what I told myself, anyway. 
Following our usual path across the fields, Poro hung back, unsure. I knelt beside him, ruffling the knotted fur of his head, and when I moved forward again, he remained behind, eyes on the trees, legs planted firmly. Suddenly, far in the distance, a spray of fireworks crackled and fizzed upwards, leaving a sparkling wake that drifted for a moment across the grey-black sky. Sure that Toro had simply gotten an inkling of the fireworks before I had, I went back to him, gave him a treat from the stash in my pocket, and pulled out one of his ratty toys. Waving it around for a while until I was sure I had him distracted, I then logged it towards the tree line. Toro hesitated, but eventually trotted towards the woods, and I followed. A dense hush enveloped me as I stepped between the ragged, ivy-covered trees. The swampy ground swallowed the sound of my steps. The press of the coming night like a door sealed closed against the outside world. Stepping over the old fallen bough, dodging the grasping snarls of thistles, I wove my way into the centre of the wood. Already feeling that strange and peaceful resignation fold over me. Horror stayed close at my heels, still spooked by the fireworks, I thought. We were nearing the midpoint of the forest when I saw the door in the tree. About two foot tall, it nestled within the thick trunk of a diseased oak whose first few leaves, black, spotted and limp, clung to peeling branches. I stayed for a while, just looking. I had had no more than a few sips, maybe slightly more, and the bottle in my pocket along the way. But I didn't feel feverish or in any way unwell. The door was definitely there. I want you to understand that as much. That door, made with thick-cut timber and studded with poorly tooled iron, existed. Toru started up a low growl deep in his throat. Despite this, I didn't really feel in any way uneasy. I remember considering the possibility that it had been cobbled up by some kids on the estate for a laugh. I recalled seeing on the news, back in the summer, how a number of forests down in Cornwall had been infested with fairy doors, and how the local council had had to urge people to stop putting them up in the trees, as it was impinging on the wildlife. There was some irony there, I suppose. Anyway, I thought the appearance of this door was something in this vein. I guess I should have wondered what sort of a person would put a fairy door in this particular forest, and why it was so large in its dimensions. It looked about the right size for a human child, I should have wondered these things. I should have turned and left that place and never gone back. I should not have opened that door. But I didn't wonder too much, and I didn't turn around. But instead, smiling slightly, I pulled open the thing, sure I would see merely the plain wood of the oak beneath, and ready to share in the joke. I felt a little foolish, I remember. But it was a door, after all. And you could go by such a thing and not try at the handle. At my heel, Toro backed up a couple of paces as I swung the little door open, its cunning hinges whining slightly with the movement. Behind the door was the yawning blackness of a tunnel that sloped steeply downwards. I stumbled away before I knew I did so. After a short while, I realised I was holding my breath and let it out shakily, a ragged huff that steamed up into the purple air. My mind could not put things together. I tried, but my brain refuted the incoming information so that my thoughts were a muddled mess. I may have stayed like that, simply looking at that pitchy hole for 
10 minutes, 20 minutes, or more. I'm not sure. After some unknown time, I crept back towards it. My hand shook as I rested them on the tree above the door and ducked my head to peer cautiously inside. The passageway that the door opened onto disappeared deep into the ground. Mud walls held up at intervals by struts and braces that marched into the darkness. Draining my eyes, I could just make out, in the far distance, the faint glitter of torch or lantern light. Then, caught on a rising draft, stench assailed me. Stench so foul that I instantly recoiled, but not before I caught, floating out on this updraft. The sound of singing. The voices that were producing this noise, a dissonant, meaty harmony, were somehow so obscene that I stumbled back and away from the doorway, intent only on escaping, feeling a horror in my heart so pure that if I had not fallen backwards, my feet tangled in roots, I think I would have died of it. As it was, I landed hard, my head knocking against the ground as I landed, so that, for a while, I knew no more. But before that dissembling mist enveloped me, I saw Toro rushing headlong towards the tunnel to disappear inside, snarling and foaming as he went. When I came to, deep night had rendered cold fingers through the trees, and all was still and hushed. Remembering in a rush what had happened, I sprang up, and shards of glass pattered and shivered around me. I recalled the bottle in my jacket pocket, and put a tentative hand to my side, feeling the wet fragments within, crunching under the press of my hand like little crushed bones. The door in the tree vanished. All that remained was the vague imprint of its hinges in the wood, which were scorched-looking and warm to the touch when I put out a faltering hand to them. At the base of the trunk, half buried beneath the drift of dank and rotting leaves, a small pile of gore. If I am to be wholly truthful in this account, I must record that, at this point, I started up with a gibbering weep that rose to a breathless scream when I saw gutting from that spreading mound of blood and shredded flesh, a of knotted fur, a colour. I ran then, hard, back through the branches that whispered and grasped, back through the clotted mud that sucked at my feet, exploding out of the trees to stand, utterly devoid of sense, beneath the clear sky sharp with starry shards, gazing with mostly unseeing eyes at the rows of houses so close to me. The sanity they represented, that I knew was lost to me forever. I never went back to my flat. Truth be told, I have no clear memory of what I did do the rest of that night. I could have slept in the field, face up to the moon, for all I know. Though I think I went to the pub and sank the required number of pints to knock me insensible again. That would certainly explain the headache I woke up with the next day, the one that lasted a week. I hired someone to shift all my stuff and moved into a ground floor apartment in the city. Somewhere the only trees to be seen were tamed, held high within squares of gravel or caged within conservatories. Somewhere the dawns were tinged with the spray of sunlight of glass and corrugated steel, and the dusks were electric for as far as the eye could see. As I told you, I have never told anyone this story before. I would pay a great price to sleep at night again, to know that what I saw when I opened that door was a dream, that I had drifted off on my usual stump and conjured the whole thing from whiskey. 
that Toro ran off and strayed onto the road, never to return, and that the fleshy mess beneath that tree was a fox-hunted bird, nearly. But when I close my eyes, seeking the sleep that never comes, I am enveloped once more by that foul stench, and by the sound of profane voices singing into the stillness of the night. And one of those voices is my own. been listening to the Night's End podcast, which is a production of Dissonance Media. The Door in the Woods was written by M.A. Smith. To connect with her or find more of her work, head to Facebook at facebook.com forward slash M.A. Smith writing, or head to her website at masmithwriting.com. This episode was narrated by Georgia Cook. Georgia is a writer, illustrator, and voiceover artist from London. She can be found on Twitter at Georgia Cooked and on her website, georgiacookwriter.com. The original score was performed by Frank Nora. Frank is one half of the team over at Tiny Tales Podcast and completes the original score on all of the episodes. If you've not checked out Tiny Tales yet, I highly encourage you to. They are a talented duo and have fantastic stories to share. To check out more of Frank's music, head over to franknorot.com. That's franknawrot.com. Links to all the voice actors, podcasts, and websites are in the show notes. Anna Mortain was performed by Rebecca Strazina, who is the host of her show, The West London Witch. Samuel was performed by Mike Ricard from the Stories of Strangeness podcast. Jimmy Horrors was performed by James Barnett. This episode was edited and produced by James Barnett. If you're a writer and think you have what it takes to spook the pants off our listeners, then we want you. We currently have submissions open for Halloween-themed stories for our Halloween special. Head to www.nightsendpodcast.com to submit. Submissions close 15th of August in your time zone. And as always, stay horrific, everyone. <laughs>